Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, the series that is part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. Our aim is to unearth stories and insights from the top people within high performance and what they're doing now as they lead from their homes and what they're planning and thinking about as sport starts to return to all our lives. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I'd like to say hello again to the returning listeners and say a big welcome to those who are listening for the first time. In a moment, we'll be having a conversation with Sir Andrew Strauss, discussing his career and on and off the field with England and his thoughts on cricket and sport in its current climate. With sport re-emerging from the shadows, we dedicated our latest performance journal, Edition 21, to winning the lockdown so our members can read of the best practices and insights on how leaders across football, rugby, the NFL, the NBA, hockey and the like are preparing their teams for the return to play. Alongside that, we have our virtual Leaders Meet Total High Performance event next week on July 8th and 9th. There's still space to join, so if you want to join our members and listen to leaders from Google, Deloitte, San Antonio Spurs, EIS, Philadelphia Eagles and UFC, then head over to their Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find out more. You can also head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to find out about joining the event and about becoming a member of our unrivaled network of the world's high performance community spanning all sports and all aspects of performance. It's a pleasure to have my co-host alongside me once again. It's top sports psychologist, friend and colleague, Mr. Michael Caulfield. How are you today, Michael? I'm particularly well because the cricket season has started in the last four hours and that's good news, I think. Very good news. Very good news indeed. Well, I'm chuffed to welcome this week's guest onto the podcast. It's former England cricket captain and current committee chairman and executive chairman of his company, Maya Flick. It's Sir Andrew Strauss. Andrew, how are you today? I'm very good, thanks, Matt. Yourself, how's things going for you? Yes, not not too bad. I think, as, as we were just saying before we came on air, I need a bit more variety in our lives, but we're, we're getting there. How's um, What's your working from home setup like and what it's been like the, the last few months? Well, it's been very much a Zoomathon, really. And to begin with, I, that was quite enjoyable. And then uh, I think over time, it's actually quite tiring, you know, continuously mm. being on Zoom calls all day. This is refreshing that we can speak without seeing each other in a way. I don't know if I can say <laughs> that, but it's true. I won't. I won't take that as an insight. I completely <laughs> agree. It's another another platform for us to get used to. But no, I mean professionally and personally, everything okay. I mean, how how's the you know the the life at home? But from an ECB perspective as well, how that's been? How's that been going as well? Yeah, well, it's been a very interesting time for all of us, hasn't it? I, I mean, in terms of you know having to adapt our ways of life, adapt our business models, uh, adapt our thinking around what is normal. I think we've all you know been in that that mindset haven't we and so yeah I've had a, a number of balls in the air really firstly at home with the boys like so many other people out there trying to do the homeschooling thing and trying to keep them occupied from a cricket point of view you know it, it's been very much around I suppose planning for a situation where cricket can come back but often not knowing when that situation might occur and what needs to take place in order to get there so you know there's been a lot of sort of uh, scenario planning going on and thankfully it feels like we're getting to the stage now where we're going to see some of those plans enacted so you know it's great that international cricket is starting again on the 8th of July and then um, pretty soon after that we'll get some domestic cricket and hopefully recreational cricket uh, around the same sort of time. Andrew, what do you think? I know it's it's impossible to answer, but with all we've been through, and I'm shortly to, to off, off the Aegeus Bowl to join the biosecure bubble, what do you think the cr- cricket could look like in, in the in the coming months? Not not just the travel aspect, but in terms of the rules, the regulations, how it's played. Do you think it'll, it'll still be exactly as it left off, or will it be a little bit different when we start again? Well, I think it, as much as possible, the thinking is to keep it as it always has been. I, I mean, there was some conversation there around 
you know, saliva not being a, being able to be used on the ball, and therefore should we allow artificial substances to be used to help the ball swing? I mean, I, I think if you go down that route, you might find yourself very quickly in a in a situation where the game has changed fundamentally, and it's a bit of a rabbit warren in terms of okay, if you're allowed artificial substances, what might it be, and how do you make sure there's consistency? So, you know, I, I think for the time being. Bowlers not being able to use saliva, but still being able to use sweat on the ball, I don't think it's going to make a massive difference, to be honest with you. I think the big thing, and cricket's no different to any other sport, is just not having crowds there. So, you know, to for broadcasters, it's a big challenge to try and recreate an atmosphere, I suppose. Um, and for players who generally thrive off the buzz and the energy of the, of the crowd, that might be difficult. And actually, funny enough, that works for some players more than others. So some players really need to feel that energy. Others actually, they prefer to be quite sort of divorced from the, the energy of the crowd. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out on an individual basis as well. Can I ask you, what key lessons have you learned personally, not just as a father, but also in, in your in your many roles, MindFlick, uh, Cricket Committee, etc. What lessons have you learned during, during lockdown? Because we've, we've had three or four months of there is, as you say, a Zoomathon, a Homathon, and everything by leaving the house. What, what lessons has, have you learned during this period? Yeah, a, a few things. I think the first thing, it really made me realise how much I was rushing around before the lockdown, and actually, quite frankly, how much of my time was spent doing things that maybe I didn't need to be doing. You know, initially, in particular, I felt there was a bit of a kind of weight off my mind, and I, I could just enjoy having a slightly slower pace of life for, for a while. But I think that the, the, the major lesson that we've learned is around being able to adapt, you know, and I think adaptability comes easier for some people than others. But actually, there's something quite uh, refreshing about being able to start with a blank sheet of paper, whether it's with online learning, whether it's with running your business from home, whether it's with thinking about how cricket might exist in this new age, and actually sort of casting aside some of those preconceptions or those constraints that you that, that we've always placed on ourselves and gone okay you know the, the rules of the game have changed completely here how do we navigate our way through that so you know in some ways you can look at that as a even though this has been a, a very tough period in all our lives it's, it's an opportunity as well you know i think the individuals the businesses and the sports that that see it most as an opportunity and aren't afraid to to forge a new path are the ones that are going to be mo- most successful coming out of this. You, um, yeah, Michael, Michael mentioned it earlier. Obviously, England's warm-up match started today, which is great. So, so cricket is edging, edging its way back. You, you also mentioned the, the need to kind of freshen up, or not the need to freshen up, but the opportunity to freshen up there. Is there has there been a, you know, looking at cricket specifically? Obviously, that the hundred was on the horizon before lockdown. Is, is there a view from your perspective on on things within the game that you're you're re looking at from an organisational perspective with, with England cricket, or is it is it kind of just picking up where things left off before lockdown? Well, I, I think generally, I, I mean, I think most sports and certainly the big sports have been on the sort of upward trajectory in terms of revenues over the last you know twenty to 30 years really um and you know the tv rights have gone up and up um i think this is the first time for a lot of sports and clubs where you know they've had to find themselves find themselves with a significant revenue shortfall and cricket's no different in that regard and as you say we've cancelled the 100 this year and that that's a big revenue shortfall we're not getting all the cricket in that we'd want to and so you know really it's a it's a time for 
for the the game of cricket to look at its cost base and say like what 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 do we really need and what don't we need and how can we do things in a more streamlined way and more importantly like what's the innovation how's the game going to sort of maneuver itself to meet future supporters needs and viewing habits and so you know the more you talk about that the more i think the 100 becomes a really compelling product and the idea of it being short, sharp to the point, exciting, fresh, different and over, you know, a very kind of constrained period of time, that sort of six or seven weeks during the summer where you're playing a game every day. I, I think that's really going to land well. Uh, obviously, this year is not the time to do it. If there are no crowds or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I think cricket sometimes has that reputation of being you know, not the most progressive of sports. But actually, if you look at all the innovations in the cricketing world over the last 10 or 15 years, we've probably done better than most sports and we'll need to continue doing that, I think. I recall you initially, of course, as, as the opening batter for England. I even sat next to your parents one day at an oval test match in Triumph and watched them watch you score a century, I believe. But as captain of England, how did you manage to concentrate on your main role for the team, which in my view is still scoring runs as a batter? How difficult was that and how much of a strain mentally was it to combine the role of, of batter and captain? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because the truth is it ebbed and flowed. So when I was first made captain, I really benefited from not having to think about the minutiae of batting um, and was, you know, and really enjoyed the idea of being able to sort of elevate my thinking to what was, was the team's needs and therefore, what was my job within those those sort of broader needs? And you know, my experience was not that different from other captains in the sense that the first period, uh, I actually probably played, had my best period as a batsman. And I suppose there's something there around leading by example and showing the team the way and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think where it became more challenging is down the track where the constant, I, I suppose, exhaustion is probably not the right word but you're just you're constantly having to make decisions you're constantly thinking about things you're constantly being you know asked your opinion on things while at the same time trying to focus on your role as a batsman I, I think I found myself increasingly with a bit of a scrambled mind and, and not the headspace that I needed to be able to perform at my best with a bat it definitely did ebb and flow uh, I think you know if you look at my record as a captain it, it was pretty similar to many others, which it started much better. And as you know, my, my performance as a batsman and then it by the back end, it was significantly below my long term average. So, um, you know, I, certainly towards the back end of my career, I really started working on things like mindfulness and things like that, which helped me a lot in just sort of quietening down the mind and giving me the space to when it's batting time, just to focus on the ball coming down rather than getting too clouded with everything else that was going on. Have you taken those skills into into your further roles? Because I presume they don't just apply to waiting to, to open the batting for England. My role as director of cricket for England, you know, that felt like I was pulled from pillar to post a lot. So, you know, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, trying to, you know, allow myself to, to not think all the time. And in particular, like quietening the mind so that you can sleep better and get away from it when you're switched off. So, you know, allow you to be a bit more present at home. You know, I definitely took something from my my career in that regard. But, but the truth is, when you're an international sportsman, ultimately you're judged on your performance on the pitch, and then you're also judged on your performance on the pitch as a captain. I, I think when you're in other other positions, then you know you're not judged in quite the same way. You're probably judged in more of a sort of your long term contribution rather than what happens on a day to day basis. So the the pressure and stress isn't the same as when you're playing international sport. 
do you feel you are do you feel you're prepared for that when you're you know you know when you were put into that role as captain and even the director of cricket role do you do you feel looking back now that you are prepared fully I, I guess maybe you can't always be prepared fully but do you think there was uh, maybe more of a framework or, or training to be a leader that you, you could have had around you? And is that maybe something that the players of today in every sport maybe could benefit from? Yeah, look, I think, funny enough, when I took over as director of cricket, the, the thing I was most prepared for is actually the thing that I think a lot of people in sports administration struggle the most with, and that is the the media sort of intrigue and mischievous nature of the media at times and the constant scrutiny. So that bit wasn't, that was very familiar to me, and I didn't get anywhere near as worried about that stuff as a, a lot of the people that work with me at the ECB. Um, what I found hard was two things. I suppose, you know, running a department rather than a team is very different, especially a, a sort of high performance department like cricket. You are all over the world and so in different places geographically. And so, you know, just trying to keep people engaged with what it is we're trying to do and trying to really keep my finger on the pulse as to uh, what was happening on the ground was important, was, was very difficult. And I had to learn to let go much more. You know, in cricket, you can kind of go, right, we're going to go with this tactic now. And then you can kind of lead it and, and see that everyone's following it. In a department, you you know, you have to trust people to sort of forge their own paths a bit more. I do think generally in sport, and I think, you know, is cricket any different from other sports? I don't know. But we don't prepare people for leadership positions at all, to be honest with you. And in fact, the more structured the development programs are, the more coaches there are support staff I think the less players have to think for themselves at all actually um and so I think it's it makes it a bigger stretch for a player to be sort of suddenly thrust into a leadership position these days than perhaps it, it was uh 10 or 15 years ago I also think during during, during the lockdown uh Sir Andrew my, my my somewhat lockdown view because I've been I've been liaising with coaches and players and athletes via leaders and in my own work too that players have actually worked a lot of things out for themselves during the past four months because they haven't had that huge support staff around them. They've learned how to eat, sleep, train, cook, and and relax, and sometimes practice. I think I think that's one of the positives to come out of COVID, if I may, if I can use that word to come out of it so far. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. You know, I've always been uncomfortable with this sort of concept of the cult of the coach. You know, that that you have this sort of messianic figure who's who's pulling all the strings, and that the players are sort of you know, being manipulated by this coach to do their job. You know, that's never been my experience in cricket. It's always been the, the players doing the their jobs and the more players have been encouraged to think for themselves and problem solve for themselves uh, and the more the sort of coaching staff are a sort of literally a support staff rather than the kind of the mainstay of the team, the more successful teams have been. So, you know, that, I know that's a bit contrary to kind of the direction of travel in a lot of sports, which is you know, very heavy on support staff. Um, you know, I, I've never been comfortable with that concept myself. And if I can then take you back to running a department, which, again, you're, you're still a very young man now, but you were then when you took over that department. Did you have to do some rapid learning on the job, so to speak, and use the real world as your classroom? And, and what did you learn in those initial months? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I knew a lot, quite a lot about England cricket, i.e. what went on on the pitch um, at elite level. But actually, I knew very little about everything that underpinned that. You know, when you start talking about talent ID and development, when you start talking about really good use of analytics, for instance, when you start understanding the, 
the broader kind of ECB responsibilities of the national governing body and, you know, the, the, the various revenue streams that you need to, to think about and, and the various stakeholders you need to keep happy. You know, I just knew nothing about that stuff. So I definitely spent a lot of my first uh, six months or so, you know, I, I thought it was very important uh, when I took over the position to give people uh, clarity on my vision, where I thought we needed to get to. Um, but I was very hazy on the tactics for getting there just because I didn't know them myself, quite frankly. So, you know, after giving them the, the sort of the vision piece around winning the 2019 World Cup and, and taking white ball cricket more seriously, it was really an opportunity for me to shut up and, li- and listen, really, and, and go <laughs> around our high performance centre at Loughborough and, you know, listen to our science and medicine people, listen to the coaches and just get a flavour and an understanding for what, what was going on up to that point. And and I think, you know, increasingly over my time as director of cricket, I became more comfortable with this like this concept of trying to articulate the intent of what we're trying to do in each of these sort of little subsections of the, the department and then, you know, being comfortable with the guys on the ground getting on with it and, and delivering that intent by their own means. So that meant I had to sort of resist the, the urge to micromanage um, and also understand that, you know, that, that there are a lot of people out there that had, broader and deeper knowledge on some of these subjects than I did on the uh, on the topic of learning you know I remember reading or maybe you mentioned it in, in one of the p8s about that the topic of higher purpose and you know there's obviously that that goal that you, you achieve with the England cricket team to become number in the world number one in the world but then it was difficult to know what to do next I mean can you talk about that a little bit in terms of you know figuring out that there needs to be something higher other than other than winning um and, and that kind of phase that you went through when, when that happened yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, it seems like such an obvious thing for for anyone in a team to go, you know, we, we want to be the number one in the world. And certainly when I was England captain, that was our focus to become the number one test team in the world. It was a fantastic goal and we achieved it in 2011. But it really was a, a very hollow feeling when we got to the top and suddenly we realised that we had nowhere to go from there. Um, and everyone, obviously, the dynamic and the context has suddenly shifted and everyone was really busting and gutted to, to knock us off our perch. So I, I think my experiences there taught me that winning's not a good thing to think about as a as a goal. I think it's much better to think about effect. I mean, look, you have to win. In high-performance sport, you, you can't go too long without winning and still remain in your position. So winning's got to be a focus, but it's got to be part of something bigger. And so, you know, I really like this concept of it being about how you win and how you are as a group of people. Um, And, you know, especially when you're talking about international teams, I I do think you can grab people emotionally by by doing two things. Like, you know, I think firstly, having a a really strong vision for what it is you want to achieve. But secondly, that, that whole concept of, you know, them only being in that position in that team for a short period of time and there have been so many people that have been before you and there are going to be so many people that come after you and what contribution are you going to make while you're in that team so that idea you know very much that sort of New Zealand legacy concept of you know leaving the shirt in a better place than you found it I mean we had a, a concept of taking the, the cap forward is what we called it in cricket so you know just getting the players to to really savour the time they had and making sure that you, they connected as much as possible with ex-England cricketers to make sure they felt like they were part of a special club and then were obviously aware of the, the sort of responsibility to set the right example for the next group of England cricketers that were coming along. You know, I felt that was incredibly important. And I do think, actually, funny enough, when you look back on it, 
the, the Ben Stokes issue in Bristol where, you know, he got he he got done punching someone outside a nightclub. You know, I think it was that moment that the players realised that if you don't get things right off the pitch, if you don't judge yourselves on something bigger than just whether you're winning or not, things can come along that are actually far more disruptive to your group and your environment than winning or losing a game. And and that was a great example. You know, that was a, a horrible distraction for English cricket for the best part of 12 months. Thankfully, I think we're better for that experience now. And certainly Ben Stokes individually, you know, has turned a massive corner having been through that experience. Can I just pick up pick on that, please, Sharon, if I may? Because you talked about something something bigger. It's nearly the anniversary of, of that day at Lords, and I can I can hear the, the commentary now either on Sky from Ian Smith or from Aggers in, in the commentary box. And of course that was your vision. Did you feel just a very pleasant satisfaction that evening once once the, the winning run out had taken place? Was was that a very satisfying experience? Because that was that was more than just winning a game of cricket. That was that that brought a lot of people together. I watched it in a dressing room at Hampshire with Kent and the Hampshire players playing a four-day game. And I've never seen people so engrossed in the hour of cricket in my entire life. And I've been watching it for a long time, including Botham's Ashes, etc. Was it an extremely warm, just a lovely moment to be part of and see it just come to fruition in the most dramatic circumstances? Yeah, it was. I mean, in a sense, it was a bit bittersweet. You know, when I first took over as director of cricket and I had this idea of, you know, really prioritising white ball cricket because we had this once in a generation opportunity to win it on home soil and, and I, my my way of sort of articulating that vision to county CEOs and uh, and the media etc was just to talk about the incredible opportunity for the game of England playing in a World Cup final at home at Lords and the eyes of the nation on us and everyone talking about cricket etc etc and so you know, to be there on the day and see that transpire was extraordinary. And it was very similar to how I pictured it in my mind's eye. I certainly didn't <laughs> didn't picture the plan, the, the game. <laughs> that is for sure. But um, but definitely in terms of the way it engaged people, it was it was tremendous. And then the, the sort of, I suppose, the bittersweet element was that it was just such a shame that I was I wasn't there still in my position as director of cricket. And, you know, many people will know the story the journey that I've been on with uh, you know my wife unfortunately passing away from cancer in December 2018 and and, and me having to step down from that role so you know I I definitely felt you know it it was a shame that I couldn't really be right in the middle of that like I would have been otherwise and then also you know it's obviously a reminder of everything that I've been through personally but yeah it was a great day for English cricket there is no doubt about it and 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 actually probably more than that a great day for the game of cricket full stop you know it was a fantastic showcase for for the game so we've got the opportunity to to use that as a bit of a catapult for bigger and better things in the game I think. If if I'm asking again because one of the things I noticed you did uh, in, in in your previous role and you mentioned it earlier I've always been really keen on linking the past to the current group of players. And I work across all sports, the mainstream sports and the main rugby, cricket and football. And I like to bring in older players from past generations to talk to current players. And I'm amazed how well they get on, even though they may not have seen the older players play. You were keen on doing that with players back to the 70s. Why why did you consciously do that? And why did it seem to be so popular with the current squads who maybe hadn't seen people play in that era before? Yeah, it was just all about, I mean, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. It was just about establishing connection between uh, the past and the present and hopefully the future as well. So it was that, that bigger cultural piece. For the ex-players, it's just, it is a fantastic 
opportunity to be able to be back in that environment. You know, everyone will have such great memories of their time in an England shirt, but not all of them, because actually some of them didn't have great time in an England shirt, but but many did. It's a real privilege to be able to go in there with the current generation and see how things have moved on. And then for the current generation to be able to just spend some time with some of those old cricketers and understand that anything they're going through now is not radically different from what people have been through in the past. You know, I think there was that was a big part of it. I, I also felt like there was a bit of a barrier there between the current generation and, you know, those ex-players that are working in, in the media. And I just felt that was an unhealthy thing, actually. It, it was benefits on all fronts to, to try and break down some of those barriers. Uh, and one of the things we did is we had, we had a England players dinner. So we invited every England current England living cricketer to men's and women's to a, a dinner at Lords. And again, that was just felt like a, a really good way for people to establish a, a deeper bond and deeper connection. And, and of course, you know, the, the focus being that the, the great privilege it is to represent your country and, and how special that is and, and also how fleeting it is as well. So, you know, that, that was very much the focus of that for us. Spoke to a few who attended that evening and they absolutely thought it was one of the nights of their lives. They really did. It was a very special night. Yeah, it was great. And, I, you know, I'm so pleased we did it. it. It wasn't an easy thing to do. And, you know, a lot of people would go, hold on, you've got bigger fish to fry than pandering to all ex-England cricketers and stuff. But that, that, to me, I think that was more important than anything else we did over those four years, actually, because it really did help us to establish that culture and that environment and that higher purpose for the current generation. You know, I'm really hopeful and I know that Ashley Giles has sort of taken that on and that hopefully will become deeper and deeper over time as well. Just just having people around you that have been through the same experiences is, is so important, isn't it? Not not necessarily if you're a captain or you're a, or you're a coach, but you touched on it there and you have you know, just the privilege of playing for your country. You know, you're a leader in, in, the, in the position there, even without you know, being, being the captain. I mean, how, from a mental aspect, I mean, how... Is it difficult to cope with being in those leadership positions? Because it can be quite a lonely place, can't it? So how important is it just to, to cherish those relationships with people around you that maybe have been through the positions that you've been in in the past? Yeah, I, look, I totally agree. Leadership is lonely. And it's obviously at its loneliest when things are going at their worst, which is probably when you need, you most need support. So, yeah. um, you know, I definitely felt that it was useful for me to have a sort of a go-to person, a mentor, so to speak, that I could sort of debrief with and someone who was sort of outside the bubble, so to speak. You know, I use a guy that some of you guys might know, uh, Steve Bull, who, who'd worked with me while I was, you know, England captain and, and previous to that as the England psychologist. You know, he, he had a, a big role to play there. And then one or two other trusted sources as well. So, you know, I mean, the hard thing generally when you're in a leadership position is being able to switch on and switch off because, certainly in high-level sport, there's no obvious time to switch off because there's always something going on. You know, that, that ability to delegate and to to allow other people to play their role is an important part of that. And it, it's something that leaders find difficult to do, especially when they're under pressure. So, you know, I, I would always advocate people having the self-confidence to, to be able to let other people do their job. I think that's a, a really important part of a, being a good leader, but B, just managing your own energy levels, to be honest. And I think we're living through, well, like, this is, these are the most extraordinary stroke, worrying times, but 
again, when you were a leader, Sir Andrew, how difficult was it to make the right decisions, even though you knew that they would be maybe unpopular or criticised? That criticism can get very personal. How, how did you cope with that? Yeah, look, I mean, I had to make a couple of big calls. And, and the first one, probably my first day in the, in the job was not to not recall Kevin Peterson to the team. And I knew that was going to play out badly in the media. And I, I knew that well, in many cases, wouldn't be seen as the, the popular choice. But, you know, I, I think deep down, you've got, to, you've got to come back to what is your philosophy as a leader? You know, how do you, how are you looking to move things forward? And for me, it was about creating a, a sort of pressure off environment. It was about, you know, getting a coach on board who was able to play a supportive role and allow the captain and the players to be sort of front hat front of house and I just knew that that kind of the sort of the media circus that was going to surround Kevin coming back just wasn't wasn't worth whatever he might bring so you know in a lot of ways it wasn't a personal thing it was just more about what had gone on previously um, so you know if that's your philosophy then you have to stand up for it however unpopular it might be and in fact, even if it doesn't work, then, you know, you, you can at least look yourself in the mirror and go, look, I thought this was the right thing to do. I followed it. I, I Hopefully I convinced and, and influenced other people to follow me. And whether it worked or not, you know, maybe I can, I can learn the lesson from it. But the, the worst thing, the absolutely worst thing you can do is try and swim with the tide. You know, to swim with the tide of, of popular opinion or media agendas or anything like that, I just think you you end up going down a sort of virtual plug hole, just circling your way down into oblivion. So and without having anything to hold on to. So you know it's it's increasingly hard and, and increasingly you see a narrative build, whether it's in politics or in sport, where you know it's about a manager who's under pressure and he needs to be sacked or a player needs to be dropped or whatever it might be. And at the time, it feels almost impossible to hold your line against that. But actually, what you realise is a week or two later, it's all gone. And so while you're in the eye of the storm, it feels irresistible. But actually, if you can just you know, hold your nerve, you come out the other side and, and the story's drifted somewhere else pretty quickly. Do you, um, I mean, not necessarily that topic specifically, but do you look at other sports and, and then maybe reflect upon how your career went in cricket? Or, or do you look at other sports now and other leaders? You know, I know we've been at events together where we've had other coaches and um, you know, leaders from other sports. Did you look and think, well, you know, cricket's doing this very well, or maybe we're a bit behind the curve, or that or do you as a as a you know, on a personal level, the way that you lead, do you look at other sports and other figures and see how they do things and try and try and learn from that? Yeah, definitely. I mean I just love having conversations with people from different sports. Because there there are and not just sports, you know, it could be business as well. There's so many commonalities there. And funny enough, I think that you know, the P8 talks that we've been through and, and the various sort of leaders functions, the more I spend in the company with others, the more I realise there isn't some sort of silver bullet there. You know, there isn't something that you can just turn a switch and it's going to it's going to guarantee you success. There are so many dynamics at play in high level sport. And you can't, there's only a few of them you can control. So, you know, the people that I've been most impressed with are the ones that are able to kind of accept that on one level or another, but that doesn't stop them trying their best and trying to, you know, manipulate the things in their favor as much as possible. But there's also kind of, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a slight sort of philosophical attitude to it that, you know, what will be will be. Um, and I can't control everything. And so uh, 
and I think the other thing you you realize that the more time you spend with other people is there's so many different styles and there's so many methods that can gain success. There's not one right way that works. In fact, the context, I think, gives you an opportunity to to come up with the right method a lot of the time. So, you know, if you've got a team that's been rock bottom, you probably need a slightly different philosophy and and way of doing things than a team that have been constantly winning and possibly coming to the the end of their peak period or whatever. Like, you you know, what are the senior players like? What's their what are they bringing to the party and therefore what's the role of the support staff on the back of it? So I think it's a very fluid environment and you've got to accept that. Andrew, if I may, and this is a very personal thing, I've got a copy of your book, your original autobiography, and I used it to do my 26 keepy-uppies in March of this year when the London oh, Marathon should have taken place. Uh, and you can certainly thank Karina Murta for that because there's no way I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't drop the ball once with your very fine autobiography. But can I ask you now, because we know what you've been through and, and we just hope that you and the boys are well, but how moved and thrilled have you been by the public reaction to you personally, uh, your family, and the love for the Ruth Strauss Foundation? Because we started buying clothes which were bright red, which only Henry Blofeld could have got away with, but we've worn them. Uh, and how proud and moved have you been by the public reaction to you and your family? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I've been just utterly blown away. Uh, you know, it, it was such a tough 18 months for us, you know, Ruth going through her illness and, you know, the the gradual realisation that, well, I mean, there was a realisation right from the start that this wasn't a battle she was going to win, but it was that her time was, was increasingly limited. And, and so, you know, I, I was just, I was blown away by her courage and her willingness to, engage in preparing me and the kids for what was to come and even in those final days just just the extraordinary bravery that she showed and so my motivation was very much to try and create a legacy for her name and to you know allow her spirit to to carry on and and that was the focus of the foundation to you know on the one hand to research these um, rare forms of non-smoking lung cancer but on the other to provide support there for people uh, for families of people that are facing the death of a parent, you know, I know that's what Ruth wanted, and so uh, it, it's a real passion for me. Like it, it burns very deeply inside me, and then to see the willingness of the whole cricketing community to support that was was unbelievable, and to support the boys as well who who were there on the day. So, it, it, yeah, I, I mean, I, I felt so boiled buoyed by that and also motivated by it, and we, we, we're pushing forward. I mean, this year is much more difficult, obviously. To, to to do the the red for Ruth Day Lords is going to be more challenging, but you know we're we're absolutely even more determined than ever to make a difference to people's lives and to offer support for people when they're they're going through what is obviously an incredibly uh, tough time in their lives. Well, I think it, it, it captured us, Sir Andrew, last year. Uh, I think the day itself was extraordinary, and when when England won the World Cup, I think much much of much of the celebration was down down to you and the way in which you led the white ball revolution. And I'm glad that the boys recognise and realise now just how much love and affection there is out there for the for the Strauss family and because of the courage they they, they must have shown. Uh, you use the word adaptable is is really something we probably can't comprehend from this end. So thank you so much for for, for touching upon that very personal subject. No, no, it's an absolute pleasure. No problems. One final question that we've asked all our uh, all our guests, Andrew, is a, uh, a book or a podcast or a program recommended from from your time in lockdown. Now you said, and I don't really, hope you don't mind mentioning that the PS4 has nearly gone out the window uh, in in lockdown. But is there is there been anything in your downtime that you've been able to enjoy? And it doesn't have to be leadership or sport related. But any recommendation that you can 
can uh, can I throw out there to our to our listeners in terms of books or podcasts or programs that you've enjoyed? Oh God, I've just had a massive mind blank there. Um... <laughs> I'd say coming into play by Andrew Strauss is the first one. Yeah, Still available yeah, on Amazon and all and all good bookshops. Yeah. And you can say Tiger King if you want. A few guests have said that if it's a guilty pleasure on Netflix. I didn't get into you know I, there'll be a lot of people that would mention the Last Dance, won't they? I mean, yeah, for you sure. know, I, I found that really interesting on, on two fronts. N- number one, to to get a, a window into the sort of the mind and the soul of Michael Jordan, obviously one of the the well, if probably the greatest basketball player of all time. And, and it sort of reinforced my my view that a lot of these great players, they're just made of slightly different stuff and their their view of the world is, is almost by definition different to most people. Um, and then just obviously the team dynamics at play as well. So I, I found that a really fascinating one. And also, to, to be honest, that a bit more of an appreciation and understanding for how American sports work and... Mm you know, the, the role of the owners and the franchise and the, the commercial side of it, how much that drives things as well. So, yeah, that's probably the one that, that, that sticks in my mind most over the lockdown. Yeah, you won't be you won't be alone on that one. Well, um, Andrew, real, real pleasure to talk to you today. Michael, thank you as well. It's, it's, it's well, great thank to have you. you on as always. Very best of luck to you, Andrew, with, with Mindflick. I know you're doing an amazing, some amazing work with with the company there and of course uh, to the boys and with the with the foundation as well and professionally for the road ahead with England cricket so a pleasure to speak to you today chaps and uh, we'll speak soon yeah thanks so much for having me on cheers guys that's it for another episode but if you've enjoyed these podcasts then you can find many more like it on the leaders content hub as well as on spotify apple Podcasts, or your preferred platform check out at leaders underscore insight on twitter too as we post almost everything on there as well As always, if you or your organisation are interested to join our membership and our unrivaled network of the world's high-performance community across all sports and aspects of performance, then head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Once again, thank you to the team behind the scenes for making this all possible. Hopefully, you're all enjoying these conversations. There's many more to come. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon.